I realize a lot of people listening are thinking to themselves, mobile home parks, I don't know anything about them. That sounds scary. You know, I, I would never go near them. And I understand all that. But once I started to research them, I began to understand that they do very well in the downturn because you're catering to a lower income population. And so that's one asset class where, like, I'm, I'm invested in six different mobile home park funds right now with the fifth largest owner in the U.S. And I'm not at all – I think we're going to have a downturn in the next 12, 24 months. I'm, I'm, like, literally zero concern about it, right, because most of those parks are very highly occupied, cash flowing to your point, and those tenants aren't going anywhere. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. We are the number one podcast geared towards helping international investors break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. We're all about cash flow on this show. So from Los Angeles, I'm Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, guys, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your day to tune in and for some of you leaving some incredible comments about the show. I've just been on there recently and I saw a few of your awesome comments that people have been leaving, some five-star reviews. So before we dive into meeting today's guest, I wanted to take a few moments to give a bit of a shout out. And I want to start doing this consistently because I'm seeing people constantly, or you know, not constantly, but I'm seeing my reviews starting to slowly go up, which means I'm clearly having an effect on some of you. And I want to thank you guys for leaving those reviews. So today's shout out is a bit of a doozy, I will, I will admit. And it comes from A. McGregor. And the title of this re review is called Warning dot 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 the podcast may cause you to change your career trajectory and take your life's financial future into your own control if you are on the fence about real estate investing as an alternative to the regular nine to five this podcast has all the impetus you need to push you over the edge reed has consolidated all the insight from industry titans already so your time is valuable listen to the best motivational insightful and enjoyable he gave it a five-star review thank you so much a mcgregor for taking some time out of your day to uh, to leave a review and guys if you are wanting to leave a review and help this community grow because we are really truly uh creating something awesome here you know leave a review jump online it takes takes you two minutes go on there give whatever whatever star rating you want it just shows itunes that i'm providing some awesome content and that you guys are liking that content okay guys a little bit of housekeeping as you know i've been giving a 30 minute free consultation with all my listeners out there and it's just a way of me giving back to you guys uh you know if you are interested in wanting to schedule a call with me please go ahead and shoot me an email at read at rsmpropertygroup.com and just put in the subject line free 30 minute call uh, i don't try as i said, don't try and sell you anything on this call it's completely up to you we can chat about anything you want it can be about a deal it can be about structuring a deal it can be about raising money it can be about you know whatever it might be creating a, a personal brand whatever it is that you're struggling with right now you need to be help to get you to that next step or that next level in your career I am, that's what the 30-minute conversation is for. So please hit me up at read at rsmpropertygroup.com. One last thing is that if you are in the Los Angeles area and you want to come and hang out with me, you want to go for a coffee, you want to grab a beer, you want to grab a drink, you want to go out to lunch or dinner or even breakfast. I love my breakfast meetings. I was at a breakfast meeting early this morning, 7 a.m. Love those early morning coffee meetings. 
hit me up again at read at rsnpropertygroup.com. Um, just let, give me a little bit of uh, forewarning when you're going to be in town. I am in Culver City, which is just down the road from Los Angeles uh, International Airport. And so, yeah, hit me up and we'll be able to sort out something and put you on the calendar. All right, guys, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have with me an awesome gentleman by the name of Jeremy Roll. G'day, Jeremy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Reed. How you doing? Good, mate. Good, mate. So, guys, I wanted to give you a little bit of background on Jeremy. Um, Jeremy has actually been actively investing in real estate and businesses for over 14 years. He left the corporate world in 2007, which is awesome, to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He's currently an investor in more than 50 opportunities across $500 million worth of real estate and business assets. And you heard me right, $500 million. Jeremy's also the president of Roll Investment Group, and he manages a group of over 1,000 investors, both here in the United States and in Canada, who seek passive investments in real estate and business. One of the best things I love about Jeremy is he is also the co-founder of Phoebe. And if you do live in the Southern Los Angeles, uh, Southern California area, I should say, Phoebe Phoebe is very, very well known around the investing circles, and it stands for For Investor by Investor, a nonprofit organization which was started in 2007 with the goal of networking with learning from and helping other investors grow as you know in, in terms of the real estate investments both here in the United States and around California. The group is actually the largest meetup group uh, for real estate investing in Southern California with 12 monthly chapters and over 23,000 members. Now, the best part about Jeremy's story is that he's also an expat. Um, he is originally from Montreal, Canada, and he's also got his MBA from the Wharton Business School. And he's an advisor to realtymogul.com. What else does this guy not do? He does everything. And uh, Jeremy, that's pretty incredible stuff. Uh, extremely impressive track record. Tell me more about your background and how you got involved in real estate investing. Yeah, thanks, Reed. I appreciate it. It's interesting, actually. I started getting involved in real estate back in 2002, and the catalyst for me was that um, I was sitting behind my desk. I was working at Disney headquarters in Burbank at the time, and the dot-com crash had just happened. I'm a really low-risk, like ultra-conservative guy. To watch the stock market kind of go up 30% and down 30% in a year just wasn't for me. So the volatility of the stock market was really bothering me from a retirement account perspective, but what bothered me even more was a lack of predictability. And so for me, not knowing where my retirement account would be in a day, a year, 10 years, 20 years, and just the kind of the general roll the dice feeling that you have when you're participating in the stock market, that was just bothersome to me. So what I ended up looking for was actually more predictability, really, and obviously less volatility, but more predictability. So the idea that I want to be able to forecast where my, you know, what my returns would likely be. And so I started looking for low-risk cash-flowing opportunities um, and cash flow essentially has is, is just changed my life. Uh, but cash flow is my primary focus. My, probably my favorite source of cash flow. I have a few favorite sources, actually. One of my favorite sources of cash flow is definitely real estate and more specifically commercial real estate and some of the asset class, just because you can get into larger buildings that are very highly diversified, let's say like 100, 200 unit apartment buildings that have a lot of tenants. And so the diversification lowers the risk and the predictability increases. And so, um, so that's actually how I originally got involved in real estate. I kind of dipped my toe starting in 2002. And between 2002 and 2007, 
I rotated all of my uh, savings um, and retirement account money from stocks and bonds into cash flow, most of which was real estate. And then it kind of goes on from there. Awesome, mate. And that's that's a really powerful thing that I think most people don't realize the volatility of the stock market. And you mentioned something extremely key, which was the control, the control of your asset, the control of your money. You know, you place it in the stock market, you're essentially giving it to other people to, you know, hopefully your money's going to go up for you and you, you lose that control and you don't know you know, you, you, with all the volatility that is that it can happen in the stock market, that's extremely nerve-wracking. Uh, so to take that step into real estate, and I must admit, jumping into real estate in 2002 leading up to 2007, was there any issues, you know, because obviously we had the crash in 2008, was there any sort of like, you know, oh no, maybe I'm taking the wrong step at 2007? Did you did you see any forewarning of that, that happening? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting, actually. I got very lucky, okay, because in 2007, I left the corporate world in mid-2007. My wife left the corporate world in fall of 2007. We actually had our first child right then, and um, I actually had no worries. And the reason why is, well, for a couple reasons. One is because I tended to invest in stuff that actually was more protected from a downturn, and we can get into the various asset classes, but a lot of stuff I wasn't quite as concerned about. But why I got really lucky was because, um, my initial investments were actually in Canada um, because that's actually where my network was when I first started. And, you know, I was new to the U.S. I was trying to figure out who to invest with, and I was being very careful. So I started dabbling in Canada. And so the vast majority of my investments at that point were actually in Canada. And Canada didn't have the same uh, real estate downturn that the U.S. had at the time. So uh, what's crazy is that I actually have never invested. I, I'm actually in over 70 different investments right now. But I and I've obviously been others that have exited in the past, but I never actually ended up in something that had a problem as a result of downturn. I was actually in something in 2009 that did get foreclosed, but that's a whole other story. It's like one of those one percent risks. It's a very interesting and odd story. Nothing to do with the downturn whatsoever. Um, so. Yeah, to answer your question, I was very, very lucky in how I ended up starting. And I guess um, for all the listeners out there listening to your, you know, incredible story, was investing in commercial real estate the key to sort of being more downturn adverse and you know, not being uh, subjected to all the the swings and roundabouts that can that happened in two thousand and eight? Because commercial real estate essentially you're, you're you're banking on cash flow. Is that is that ma- the main reason that your investment portfolio did so well? Yeah, I would say that that's a pretty good synopsis. I mean, aside from the fact that I was insulated more in Canada, you know, I, I can use some really uh, very easy to understand examples. So mobile home parks, for example. I realize a lot of people listening are thinking to themselves, mobile home parks, I don't know anything about them. That sounds scary. You know, I, I would never go near them. And I understand all that. But once I started to research them, I began to understand that they do very well in the downturn because you're catering to a lower income population. And so that's one asset class where, like, I'm, I'm invested in six different mobile home park funds right now with the fifth largest owner in the U.S. And I'm not at all, I, I think we're going to have a downturn in the next 12, 24 months. I'm, I'm like literally zero concern about it, right? Because most of those parks are very highly occupied, cash flowing to your point, and those tenants aren't going anywhere. Similarly, uh, you know, investments in, um, there's a couple other asset classes that are a great example, self-storage, which I actually have been focused on uh, for the past few years, one of the assets I've been investing in. Because the National Self-Storage Association, based on my understanding, quote, likes to quote that in 2009, after the really bad crash here, the average occupancy rate across um, self-storage properties across the U.S. went down only 1% in terms of occupancy. So, and that's because, it, again, it's counter-cyclical, kind of like mobile home parks. People had to, like, move out. They had to double up and live with families, and so they used a lot more storage. And so, therefore, you know, if you were, were in a highly cash-flowing, highly occupied self-storage unit in 2009, 
in the right location, you probably did just fine, right? Another great example is apartments. You know, apartments have been in high demand since 2009, since people had to move out of houses. They were foreclosed, unfortunately. And so apartments, by the way, normally in a downturn, are very, have what they call sticky rent. So that means that rents don't typically de decrease very much in most locations. It, can have, it could decrease in some locations, but in most, in the average location in a, in a good, uh, highly demanded area, I think rents don't normally go down more than 10%. So in, in a, you know, could the cash flow get reduced a little bit? Yes. Are you going to get foreclosed or tenants going to move out? You know, most likely not. And so, and it's funny you mention all this because the way that I work, because I, I look for passive cash flow that has, you know, high probability of coming through. I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and literally nothing has changed. That's literally my goal and how I end up. And I, and I guess that that, that is... Um, a very good point is that, that you are banking on the fact that people are still going to continue to rent, even in downturns. Uh, people are still going to have storage uh, facilities, even in downturns. And that is where the power of investing in commercial real estate is just phenomenal. And, you know, when I first moved to the United States, like yourself, Jeremy, it, I was just blown away by the, the, the types of yields that you can get here in the US. Uh, were there similar yields that you were getting in your Canadian portfolio? Uh, were you even investing in commercial real estate in Canada? Yes, I was doing primarily commercial real estate. In fact, probably if I think about it, it was all commercial real estate in Canada that I did up there. And the yields are very, very similar, if not identical. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to be like any other city in the U.S. You know, if you invest in a certain different class of property in a different type of area, the returns will be different based off of the cap rates. But in general, it's very, very similar, if not identical to the U.S. Right, right, right. And are you... I just sort of heard with, with all your explanation of the types of assets you're involved in, apartments, mobile home parks, are you focused more towards the sort of blue collar working class community that will always require you know, a roof over their head? Is that the sort of um, investment strategy you look for when, when, when investing in a deal? I wouldn't say I necessarily target that, and it's going to depend on the asset class because I invest in sure. office building and retail strip centers and all different types of things. But in general, here's what I've done. Essentially, the middle class, very unfortunately in the U.S., has really eroded over the past years. It's all in the statistics. Right. And so what I, what I realized is that I better start investing either targeting the low end or the high end because the middle area is eroding, right? And so and I personally prefer the lower end and the higher end because of the fact that when you're catering to the lower end, on average, depending on the asset class, you're going to have less of a shock in a downturn. So let me give you a great example. Um, in a class A office building where you have, let's say, just huge tenants, right? Um, they tend to occupy multiple floors. You have a like high-rise type of office building. In a downturn, you may have some attorneys, they, you know, those, or accountants, and if things get tight, they'll start to reduce their space needs. They may, you know, not take all the floors anymore. They may move out. And so, in a class A building, you've got a lot more volatility. And again, I'm making a lot of. Uh, I don't want to, like every situation is different. Every market is different. But on average, there's a lot of risk to being in a higher end building. Another great example is in retail. If if uh, if you if you own a building and that has a Gucci or a very high end retailer in there, and we have downturn and there isn't as much money being spent on that stuff, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot you know potential for that tenant to move out. Whereas if you've got a Walmart, if you've got a CVS, if you've got a Ralph, and you know the average person is shopping there. During a downturn, if it's the right tenant mix, you're going to have less susceptibility. Right. And so there's a lot of different considerations. But um, in general, I would say that I'd be catering either to the low end or the high end, depending on the asset class and trying to avoid the middle. Right. Interesting. And I, did, uh, I do like what you say there that um, for all those listeners out there listening about what you're picking up on what Jeremy just said, and that was 
in the in, in his example for the Class A office building, he was reliant upon, or people are reliant upon, other businesses doing well. Now, if it's a re- recession and those businesses don't do well, they move out and you don't have any renters, correct, Jeremy? And so that sort of brings the higher risk that could be involved with a Class A asset if if we have another downturn as severe as 2008 and, and businesses go out of business, essentially, and they don't rent from you anymore and, and yada, yada, yada. But on the, 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 the residential side, on the apartments and on the mobile home parks, people still need a roof over their head. So that's, it sort of hedges the risk a little bit better, correct? Yeah, I would say that probably like if you're trying to compare apartments to office buildings, apartments tend to be less volatile, assuming you're in a high demand area. Sure. But going back to the office buildings, just to clarify, so you can have an office building that's got smaller tenants, kind of B or C class building that will have a problem during a downturn because a lot of those people may end up having to close, right? Except what I find is that, first of all, you've got to look at the tenant mix before you buy. You've got to be able to forecast, are these people going to be able to do well during a downturn? If you're looking for stable cash flow, it's stuff you've got to think about years ahead. And if you've got the right tenant mix and kind of a, more of a recession-proof type of tenant base, the great thing about being in a non-Class A office building versus Class A is that very often you've got a larger diversification of tenants. So one tenant may take 1,000 square feet. Another one may take 4,000 square feet. Another one may take 5,000 square feet. And if you've got 100,000 square feet there, you've got many more tenants and more diversification, which theoretically can reduce your risk if you're already highly occupied. Whereas in a Class A building, you know, Xerox may take or any company X may take three floors. And if they're out, they're reducing the office to be like 20% or 30%, and that's a problem. And so you tend to find Class A buildings have people taking larger footprints on average, and therefore you've got less tenant diversification. Now, to be honest with you, like we could talk for a long time about this topic because there's a lot of factors. Like every deal is different, every tenant mix is different, and every location is different. Um, but I would say that on average, you know, a really high demand apartment building, for example, is going to have less volatility than an office building, uh, you know, on average. Right, right, right. You, you're correct. We could talk about it for hours and hours and hours, and there are nuances of every single deal, and it's very, very important to know that every deal is different, and they do not, not, not any two deals are the same. So keep that in mind. Uh, I mentioned in the intro that you know you've been involved in over five hundred million dollars worth of transactions in both business and real estate. Um, so what is so attractive to you in terms of being a passive? cash flow investor in those transactions? Yeah, great question. So when I first started out, I mentioned before, I was working behind the desk at Disney headquarters in Burbank. I was a middle-level manager, very busy managing multiple people, just working really, really hard. So for me, going passive to begin with was really the only way to go because I didn't have time to be active. I just was not going to be effective enough and be able to learn the asset classes, learn the business well enough in the amount of time that I had. So I chose to go passive. Um, and so there's a few benefits to being passive. There's benefits to being passive and benefits to be active. And I'd say the first thing for someone to consider if they're just starting is, you know, your personality. You know, are you okay with being passive versus active? And I think the biggest difference is control. And I like to tell people that when you go passive, you trade control for diversification. That's kind of the way that I look at it anyway. And so what that means is that um, one of the big benefits of being passive is that you can essentially uh, put smaller pieces of your capital across many more deals theoretically to reduce risk. Um, and so, um, and by the way, you can actually increase predictability because instead of owning, let's say, one apartment building yourself, if you're in 10 of them, right, then theoretically you've got more tenants across 10 of them. You could potentially put your money into build, buildings with more tenants for each one. And so you're probably going to get better diversification. Um, and, and another great thing about being passive is that you get diversification across assets uh, or asset classes, operators, and geographies. 
And all three of those are important in their own way. Another thing is that you can't be an expert if you're going to be active across multiple, multiple asset classes. It's just unrealistic, right? Um, and so what I tend to do as a past investor is I'm able, almost like when you own a business and you're hiring other people to do certain jobs that might be even better than you at those jobs and you're leveraging people's talents and skills and expertise, I am making bets on people who are experts who have been in certain assets for years. So when I invest in self-storage, I invested in a top 50 operator in the U.S., and they know this business in and out, and I don't, right? And so um, and so it's, it, I, I guess I actually make a bet on an experienced person and leverage that person's experience. Not only that, but I actually get to, to leverage their time and their credit, right? And, uh, we, you know, so often they have to either personally guarantee a loan, and those loans are literally millions of dollars in size, and they may not even need to do that if they have enough of a track record with the bank. But these are things that I couldn't do as an individual that I can actually leverage because I'm making a bet on, on someone else who's doing bigger things. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefits to being passive. Um, but I would say that it really starts with, like, are you as a person going to be comfortable being passive and giving up control to somebody else? Uh, and if you are, I think it's a great way to go, and it's, it's the way that I've, I've always chosen. Right, right. And and being a passive investor involved in a deal, and you, you are involved in across a lot of different asset classes, how have you got comfortable knowing that, okay, I can invest in a mobile home park or I can invest in a storage unit or I can invest in an apartment? Are you educating yourself enough on each of those asset classes to know that you know that person or that group is a good group to be investing with? Like, What's your sort of process? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's uh, a bit of a complicated answer. It depends sure. on the asset class. So let me start with an easier one. So apartments, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to include student housing apartments because they're a little bit different because they tend to have a little bit more expenses associated with them. They get torn up a little bit more. And there's also a certain schedule each year at a certain university, and you may get nine-month leases or 12-month leases. So I'm not going to – I won't get into that, but let's just take a cookie-cutter apart building in the middle of a busy city. Um, you know, if I'm going to analyze one, the great thing about it is that it's actually relatively straightforward, right? Meaning that if I get a spreadsheet and I want to understand it, all I'm looking at is projected income versus projected expenses and therefore the projected cash flow, just to break it down really, really simply. Now, the great thing is, is that if you just take it that simply, you can think, okay, I can compare an apartment building to a retail strip center to an office space. And there are nuances with each, but from a high level, it's really that simple. Now, what you have to do is learn the nuances with each asset class. I would say apartments are probably the least amount of nuances I can think of. And then it gets more complex depending on the asset class. So a retail strip center, just real quick, a really great example of it is, you know, the nuance is what, you know, the leases tend to, to turn over more quickly. When all leases coming up, you know, are your anchor tenants coming up in a, a year or in 10 years? Have you actually um, put aside enough tenant improvement allowance that if somebody leaves, you actually have enough money to help redo the space because often you have to put money towards doing that with the tenant as part of the negotiation. And so you, you can see that's another angle of nuance that was maybe beyond the apartment buildings, which are more just a straightforward look at like expenses, utilities, et cetera, and it's just more straightforward. And then it gets more and more complex. So you mentioned mobile home parks. Mobile home parks are a bit of a different animal. Um, they're actually a lot more straightforward than they sound, but you have to learn what to watch out for when you're looking at a deal. And a great example of mobile home parks is that you essentially, you want to look for mobile home parks where the parks don't own uh, very, very many, or if any at all, of the actual homes that are on the land. And that's because, you know, what I've learned in just research is that, you know, if you have um, renter, rented parks where there's only renters and they don't own the home, they're going to just be a lower quality tent. They're going to have more problems with the park and you're going to have a lot more problems with it as its owner and, and the cash flow won't be as stable. 
And so, but the way that I learned that is just to get myself educated. So on the mobile home uh, park situation, I actually personally went to a uh, three-day educational, they call it boot camp, and kind of learned how the business was done from an operator side. And then I knew what to look for. And now, well, the way I learned across most asset classes, though, was actually what I call opportunity exposure. So I would read enough deals to start to look at the nuances between the two, and you can start to look about, you can start to like see certain common threads associated with each one, and start to see like, so let's just take apartments, the easiest one. If you give me an apartment deal, and I take a look at how, what you assumed your rent increase was going to be, what you assume your expense increase was going to be each year for inflation, and then you look at the expense ratio, I already know that their expense ratio should be between X and Y in a certain market, and I can just very quickly see if you are being conservative or not as an operator. And so you learn that by looking at all different deals, comparing them across the board, and starting to see the differences, and starting to understand. You start to pick up at, well, oh, this one's conservative. Oh, that one isn't conservative. Why? And and so I don't have a very good answer except opportunity exposure is how I learned for the most part, plus some education as well. You know, talk to other investors, learn from other investors. Great sources and experienced investor tends to know a lot of the stuff because they've had to learn by default. That is, no, that's great. And it's, I think you sort of drove home the point that educating yourself over, you know, many, many different deals, understanding, you know, expense ratio is going to be between X and Y in certain markets and not just taking the first deal that comes along to you and gets offered to you and say, oh, well, you know, how do I know that this is a deal? And so that sort of leads me into my next question. And is that is you've educated yourself, you've gone out and you've underwritten a few deals, or maybe not underwritten a few deals, but you've seen a lot of deals in certain markets. What other advice could you give to people out there looking to get involved in a syndication on the passive side to make sure that they are, you know, investing in the right group? That's a great question. So I would say, first of all, the most important thing to keep in mind is who you're actually making a bet on. Right. Uh, and I would say the same thing if you're investing in a startup. I think with startups, it's easier to understand. I think that people tend to get look at an idea and say, wow, this is a great idea. And they may invest in it because of the great idea. But what's more important because things can fluctuate as you start the business is who are you making a bet on and what's the probability they're going to be able to actually mitigate any problems that come up. Same thing with real estate. I like to use the example of you can invest in the best building on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, but if the manager you made a bet on runs it into the ground, eventually it's going to get foreclosed, the keys go back to the bank, and it didn't matter that it was on Rodeo Drive and it was 100% occupied when you went into it, right? Um, and, and so you know, it's always, number one, is always sorting out who is the person you're making a bet on and evaluating them. And there's a lot of steps that I take to evaluate them, and there are some, a lot of nuances to it, to be honest. Um, First thing, which is very straightforward, is that I strongly always recommend background checks. I always run background checks on the managers of the opportunity you have to control, always. And what's really sad is that I would say probably nine out of ten investors that I know do not run background checks. And I've actually known people who could have prevented having problems with somebody had they just run a background check and known up front that the person had had other issues. So background checks are my number one suggestion there. Number two is, when you're trying to figure out who you're making a bet on, what you really want to assess is, are you making a bet on someone who's being conservative in their assumptions, who's trying to under-promise in their projections, over-deliver as a result, and trying to build a long-term relationship with investors to basically do better than they projected so investors will continue to invest with them, versus on the other side of the table is someone who is um, being non-conservative, being very aggressive, they're over-promising, they'll likely under-deliver, 
but they're just trying to get the deal done for fees and for other reasons. And they don't really care that you're going to be with them for one or two deals. They're just going to move on to other investors. I I see both types of deals all the time. So clearly, if you can identify the conservative deals and the ones that have been very conservatively underwritten, those are the ones to go for as an investor. And that's already kind of pushing you towards the right kind of person to make a bet on. Another thing is that um, I always take a look at the uh, entire offering documents and read them very carefully. And what I mean by that is that sometimes you can read between the lines to get a sense that somebody is conservative or not in the way that even the sentences they use and the way the thing is framed. Um, you know, using the word guarantee is always a huge red flag. Um, and same goes with having a conversation with them. Um, you know, sometimes it's not about the question you ask on the phone or in person. It's more about how they respond to you to assess them. Uh, and actually, another rule that I have is that I rarely invest with somebody without meeting them in person first, because I find that when you meet someone in person, you get a certain impression. Sometimes these intangible reasons, you'll get a gut feel to either stay away from the person or they check the box. And I think the in-person meeting is very important, too. And I realize that sometimes people invest out of with people. I just personally make it a point to fly out, meet people in person, usually walk the property with them, get their perspective on it and get a feel for them. And you kind of, all of a sudden, the way it works for me is that I add up all these factors and all these different little nuances. And at the end of the day, my gut tells me whether or not I should invest after all the other steps. Um, and, and so, uh, and by the way, you know, it goes without saying that looking at the numbers is absolutely key because that'll tell you a lot about whether someone's being conservative or not. Sometimes very quickly, you can actually put someone aside because you can see that they've done certain things that are not conservative. So I would add all these things together and get you a gut check at the end to determine if you should move forward with somebody. Okay. So let's, let's dive deep, uh, deeper into that. I, I want to explore a little bit more. People are out there saying this is all well and good, but what are the types of specific questions or specific th- like you talked about expense ratio before is, is a very key ex- assumption that, that people use moving forward in a, in a certain asset class. For just say apartments, what are you typically seeing on a good? What's a good conservative assumption that you, Jeremy Roll, would be like? Look, this I, I agree with what he's saying for market X. What, what is that? You know, expense ratio, and, and then what are the questions, the follow up questions you would ask a, uh, a, a syndicator to make sure that as an, a passive investor, you're, you're you're feeling good about getting involved in this deal or in a deal? Sure. Yeah. Well, let's start with the expense ratio first. So. You know, I'm going to use an apartment building in a warmer climate like California, so the utilities really aren't that burdensome, for example, right, because it'll add to the expenses. Right. In a, let's say, over 100-unit apartment building, which is normally what I look at, so more than 100 tenants, I would say that if you're not in the 45 to 50% expense ratio range, um, then I start to, to understand things better. Now, it could be that you're above that, which may be a good sign, or perhaps even something about the property adding cash. And it could be that the property is mean, having to pay. Um, certain utilities that I didn't forecast. And that actually could be a risk because utility costs could easily go up and be out of your control and go, go up beyond inflation rates, right? And so I would target 45 to 50. If you're getting towards 40, I start to get really nervous. Anything under 40 to me is a huge flag. Um, anything under 45 is what I would call a yellow flag that needs to be researched better. And anything over 55 is odd. Um, and anything between 50 and 55 needs to be researched further as well. Um, in student housing, you know, I would say that anything up to 55, anything below 48 would start to worry me. I'd say 48 to 55 would be the range I would target. And then anything above 55 is probably still okay, depending on utilities. Above 60 would start to worry me. So, and again, I'm generalizing, right? And that's why, like, the specifics are really what counts in the deal. 
Um, so that answers that question. Some other things, I think that one of the most important things to ask right off the bat as a general question is, okay, what expense, annual expense increase did you assume and what annual uh, revenue increase did you assume? So um, one great way, which a lot of people don't realize, is for the, for the numbers to look good over time because they compound each year, is let's say somebody assumed a 3% revenue increase in, uh, in terms of income. I'm just going to use a more extreme example on a 1%, you know, expense increase in inflation, right? So revenue is going up 3% per year. Expenses are going up 1% per year. Well, what's happening is that there's building a 2% gap every year. And then 10 years out, that's actually quite substantial because it's compounded. And it could just be that the syndicator is trying to make the deal look better than it really will actually be. And so that's one great indicator to me. And what I like to see optimally is the same number in terms of in, in, uh, expense increase and income increase. So it'd be three, three, three percent, three percent, two and a half, two and a half, or two and two. Personally, you know, if there's a half a point spread, so three percent and then two and a half, it's okay depending on the market. Once you start to get to where like there's a three percent expense income increase and a two percent expense increase, I started to get a little more worried and, and need to be more substantiated. Yeah, that's another good, very quick thing to be able to calculate. I'm trying to think of the really quick ones to be able to go through to make it simple. The apartment buildings are actually, one of the great things I like about them is that they're very straightforward to analyze. So to be honest, look at management fees and the expense ratio, just see how much they are, see if they're in line with market. I would, uh, oh yeah, another very important thing is a vacancy rate. I definitely see some deals where, you know, sometimes I see a deal where there's 100% occupied apartment building and it's been 100% occupied for the past five years, okay? I mean, 99% occupied today. And I see somebody assume that it's going to be 98% occupied for the next 10 years. Well, that's okay, and it might be realistic, but that's not necessarily someone being really conservative, right? They're maybe being realistic. What I like to see is somebody plug in an 8% vacancy factor, which is, by the way, it means it's going to be empty one out of 12 months, that 8% number roughly. And if, even if it's been 98% occupied or 99% occupied, I just like to see that somebody use a much lower, and it gives them padding, and it also sets lower expectations, giving them the opportunity to outperform, right? By the way, the opposite can occur. I've seen people start at 90% and they think they're going to get 100%. And so like four years out, they're at 98%. They're just at 98% the whole time when right now we're at 90. And that's being aggressive and that's being the kind of person I'd be very worried about, right? right, right. So the quick, easy things to look at, just good examples. No, that, that was some very, very good examples. Um, I, I do like the fact that you touched on the vacancy rate because a lot of people uh, in syndications are buying a typically uh, a rundown apartment building or a rundown uh, commercial space and they want to go and they want to force that net, op net operating income, which means that they're going to increase the uh, the occupancy and you know increase rents and then decrease the operating expenses. So going back to your saying 45 to 50%, are you looking at deals when they're being purchased year one that that expense ratio might be higher and then over a period of two or three or four years, that will slowly reduce similarly to your vacancy rate. It might be higher on the year one and then it slowly reduces over the next two to three years. Is that another thing that you look at um, when, when going into looking at these sort of syndication deals? Yeah, that's a great question. So normally what I invest in is like either 80% occupied or more. So it could be 90%, could be 100%. So it really depends on the scenario. You know, if it is at 80%, the goal would be to maybe get to 90 or 92, and then you'd want to see that happening in the pro forma. But because I look for more stabilized, more predictable cash flow, um, very often I'm just looking for the numbers to continue the way they were and not be necessarily more aggressive than they are. Um, and so 
I don't necessarily require any value add in the way that I invest. It could be completely stabilized, although sometimes it's nice to see a little bit of value add potential. Mm-hmm. So I'm definitely okay with something increasing uh, or decreasing in vacancy over time, depending on the scenario. But to me, all it comes down to is that everything was done in a very conservative way. That's right. the most important thing to me. Right, right, right. And that's uh, that's another thing that I know you and I have spoken a little bit offline uh, prior to this interview, and that was you know you like to get involved after the reposition has has been completed and the, the operator is looking maybe to maybe cash out some investors. Is that something that you would then look to go and place your capital in that deal because it has been operating nicely for you know two years or something? Yeah, that's actually my favorite type of deal. So I invested in four self-storage deals a couple of years ago and three of the four of them were actually a recapitalization of an existing group. So the operator came in, they're, they're very big on turnarounds. They bought it at 60% occupied. We were able to get in at about 80% occupied with actually, they left us a little meat on the bone, meaning that like the occupancy rate was still going up. We thought we were going to get to 90. It was a great time to go in, right? Because the 60 to 80% occupancy risk is off the table. Probably they're going to get to 90 or 85. Uh, it was actually only pro forma to get 85, but they thought they'd get to 90 to 95. And for me personally, it's already stabilized. It's been proven. It's been turned around. The operator knows the market. And the best part about getting into that type of deal is that there's no unknowns associated with the asset because Whenever you buy a property, you just never know. The tenant base uh, may be more volatile than you think. You know, you're doing the manager or the operator doing their best to assess all this in advance. But the lowest possible uh, risk you can take is if you're going into a deal that already exists, that's been owned for a couple of years, where there's just none of those um, unknowns associated with it. Interesting. And then, you know, a lot of people, how do you find that, Jeremy? Like, how do you find those recapitalization deals? Because a lot of people get approached with sort of, you know, le- ground level, you know, level one, let's get involved in a reposition value add syndication. And there's not, I don't see as many, well, I'm not, because I'm a, I'm a syndicator myself, where would someone who wants to be passive go and find a reposition on a syndication, maybe two or three years into the deal? I'm totally honest with you, they're very hard to find. I wish I could find <laughs> more of them. I, I honestly, I would love to do more of them. They're just my favorite. They just don't come up often because often the plan is that somebody buys a building, turns it around in 18 to 36 months and sells it on the open market. And they try to get, you know, they put it on the market uh, from the operator's perspective to reduce their liability. So they can say, here's the best data we've got on the open market, right? So the investors right. know they got the best price possible. Recapping it is trickier. The funny thing about recapping it is that it's actually better for the operator, in my opinion anyway, because if the operator is willing to sit with it for a while, they can exchange investors, re-syndicate it, possibly even make some fees re-syndicating it for the work, and still own the property in the end, and then have the right kind of investors and to be happy to hold it long-term while they're getting cash flow from it, too, for their split. So if they're the kind of operator that wants to turn around and then benefit from the cash flow, but they don't have the right investor base that wants to stick around, the recap is optimal. And so it's, uh, I really wish, actually, there were more out there. Um, they're just hard to find. But when I, when I find them, I jump off, that's for sure. <laughs> So Jeremy, with all your experience um, investing in a multiple different asset classes, are you uh, helping, you know, you said you're from Canada, are you helping Canadian investors buy US real estate now with all your pre-existing relationships up in Canada? That's a great question. So um, there are some people that had co-investments and stuff with me um, through my investor group um, the past few years. The challenge with Canada and every country is different is that you have to be structured a very specific way to avoid some taxation issues. And it's, it's just the average person who's got the average amount to invest is not, it's not going to make sense for them to go through the hoops and set up the corporation and maintain that expense of keeping it going to be able to invest in the U S. So 
in general, average and you know, mom and pop investor, it's just not something that makes sense. There's going to be way too much. It just, it's unfavorable from a tax perspective. Got it. Got it. Interesting. And then on the other flip side, um, I've got a few mates in Canada. Actually, one of them was very uh, key to me getting involved in uh, commercial real estate here in the United States. But with the American dollar being so strong, are you looking to go back and do more deals in Canada now, or uh, you know, are you always keeping an eye back on the Canadian market as things change? As you're saying, you know, the, the, the cycles may be slightly different to here in the United States? Yeah, great question. So I've actually stopped investing in Canada probably since about 2010 or 11. I thought things were getting expensive there just because they never had the downturn, so things sure. kept going. Um, I actually am a firm believer that they're about to have a pretty major correction. It's actually just starting right now in single family in Vancouver and British Columbia, and it's, it's kind of in, it's it's starting to slowly affect the rest of the market on the single family side. I think they'll eventually have an economic downturn and I think the commercial estate piece will also be hit. So I am personally staying out of uh, looking at new stuff there and waiting to see what happens. So, but I bet, you know, for everybody out there listening to this, like I am ultra conservative. So um, most people will take more risk than I do just, you know, to be clear. No, that's 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 good, and and the, th- the same thing's happening in Australia at the moment, in both Canada and Australia. You know, just from my experience and my research, is that very heavily reliant upon the mining industries. They weren't hit as hard uh, in two thousand and eight, and both have very similar, uh, in- hugely inflated single family you know housing market, and the bubble's got to burst. You know, the dis- discrepancy between you know getting involved in a single family and, and wages is just massive in Australia. I know it's similar, similar in Canada, but we, you know, that's for another topic. But um, Jeremy, with all your experience investing here in the United States, I know you're ready to give me your top five investing tips. You ready to jump into it? Uh, yeah. What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I would say that I... There's two things, and I'm sorry, I'm going to throw two things at you. One is um, I I keep a very rigid schedule for maximum efficiency. So I actually schedule phone calls during a very specific time of the day. I respond to emails during very specific times, and I actually get ready for the next day during a very specific time. So it's very, very rigid. And because of that, I feel like I'm optimizing my efficiency. So for me, it's all about keeping a very, very specific schedule um, to be able to maximize my efficiency. Sorry, the other thing I want to say is that um, one thing we didn't really talk about today is how important it is to stay on top of the economy um, because that can affect real estate in so many ways. And so I actually read a minimum of one to two hours a day. And honestly, if I were to add it up, it's probably even more um, of economic news, uh, both from mainstream media and from alternative uh, sites. Um, And um, I say besides the rigid schedule, Staying on top of that to be able to forecast what's going to happen because, unfortunately, when you're investing in commercial real estate, it moves slowly, meaning you're not usually going into a deal and out of deal in three months. So you've got to think ahead. In my case, I invest in a lot of five- or ten-year deals. So, for example, since 2013, I've been investing in only um, real estate deals that I think are going to do well in the downturn. The reason why is because a lot of them are 10-year. I assume there will be a downturn within five to seven years from then, mm-hmm. and I have to be in something that will do well in the downturn. You know, the year is in advance. So... You have to stay on top of the economic news if you really want to be successful in this very, very long term. And so I just do a ton of reading surrounding that. It's very important. And this is a follow-on question for that. What type of um, reading or resources do you do you read to keep on top of your uh, economic news? Yeah. What's interesting is that I almost purposely try to avoid mainstream media. I will read <laughs> CNBC for sure, but I get very worried about looking at the – so it's interesting. 
the stock market can dictate, can actually cause some economic cycles to unwind and vice versa. But so understanding consumer sentiment is important, right? Because the mm-hmm. stock market is often moved by sentiment. And that you have to read all the mainstream new media for. You, that's really where you get the sentiment. At the same time, what I try to do to be able to forecast what's going to happen in a few years is actually look at the pure objective numbers and charts, right, that are not touched by anybody. Um, what, there's a few sites that I look at. I'd say the two, two that I would probably think of that are the best. One is called calculatedriskblog.com. I do find this to be a little bit optimistic in the way they interpret the data. But if you want to be able to look at the charts yourself and be able to really just get pure data, that's a great place. They publish things daily. Um, the other one that I like, which is a very, very extreme site, it's very pessimistic in general. I tend to tell people that if you could avoid half, just not pay attention to half of the articles that seem crazy, the other half are really fantastic. A lot of these guys are like, they're, they're reading between the lines and figuring things out months before they happen in the economy. It's called Zero Hedge. Um, they're actually previous Wall Street traders, and it's amazing how well they parse through some of the data. So, like, you may find the headline um, saying, you know, payrolls, this and that, you know, great numbers today in mainstream media. And then you're, like, reading between the lines. They're explaining to you why that's not quite the case. Okay. And um, it's amazing having their interpretation. Can you just repeat those two again? Um, we'll have them all sure. in the show notes. Sure. So one is calculatedriskblog.com. Yep. That's the more optimistic one. And the more pessimistic one is zerohedges.com. Awesome. Okay. Uh, this sort of leads me into my next question. The second question of the top five investing tips is the most influential tool that you use in your real estate business and why? Um, I would say, again, I'm going to throw two out to you. One is um, I happen to use Microsoft Outlook desktop. Uh, it's kind of old school, you know, I use a laptop and everything, but I will tell you that it's just a tremendous organizational tool for me. I have it uh, synced up to an exchange server. I can time delay emails out to tomorrow at a specific time. Um, there's a lot of things you can do with it. Calendaring is really good. Email is really good. And so I use that tool, which is highly important to me. Um, the other thing I was going to say is uh, I use a scheduling software, uh, online scheduling software that's in the cloud. And I think I probably saved at least a half an hour a day just using this software. And people seem to like it. I get a lot of positive feedback on it. It's called schedulonce.com. And it actually syncs up. If you set up your schedule correctly, you can actually have it sync real time. It syncs up to my Outlook desktop. It actually syncs up to my BlackBerry. um, And you can accept meetings so easily, even on the fly on your phone. And um, it's just tremendous. If somebody wants to schedule a meeting with me, I just tell them to click on the link in my signature and my email, and then they, that, they fill out the whole thing. I just accept the time, and then we're done. Yep. It's very, very easy. Awesome. Um, so that's a great, great tool. I'm going to have to I, – I do actually use uh, – is it Calendy? Calendy? <laughs> one, of, one of the freer ones. But, yeah, very, very good stuff in terms of making sure it's all synced and uh, saving time, but going back and forth of when they can meet and when you can't meet. <laughs> um, yeah. Mate, the most exciting project you're working on right now, or are you even working on a project right now? Yeah, great question. So it's definitely been very slim pickings on the real estate side. There's two products I'm working on right now that are actually non-real estate related. I'm going to throw another instead of one, two answer to you. One is oil. A lot of people, uh, investors, tend to see these uh, oil drilling opportunities. They tend to be very high risk. I know a lot of people have lost a lot, a lot of money uh, investing in oil drilling and you know, because it's, it's a high-risk, high-reward type of business. Sure. But what I've been looking at is actually existing wells, producing wells in fields that are producing in many cases for decades. Um, and it, it, I would say it's like 2009 for oil right now. It's the only asset class that makes perfect sense to me right now that's obvious. 
what's happened is that oil prices are down more than two years in a row. People um, who had some of these performing oil wells, existing oil wells, got involved in drilling when oil was at 80, 90 or more dollars a barrel a couple of years ago. They leveraged up with loans and they have debt coverage ratios like in real estate where they have to service a certain amount of debt assuming oil at $90 or $100 or $80. What's happening now with oil at $40 is that they're underwater, their loans, they're having defaulted loans, and the, we're actually buying, we're, I'm investing in short sales essentially through banks who are selling off their performing properties to pay off their non-performing loans because I guess they're cross-collateralized. And so it's literally like 2009 for oil right now if you can find producing existing oil well projects. Um, now, I will stop and say that the problem with oil is that you can predict the production pretty well, actually. It's, the lack of predictability is on the oil price part, which is highly volatile to price every day. So I wouldn't call it, it's not quite the same as real estate in terms of predictability, but I, I personally have been investing in a few oil projects. I just think the timing is really good from a distress perspective. Um, the other thing I'm very excited about just personally is that I've invested in three startups in the last five years. One of them is doing extremely well. I don't know if you actually you've heard of it. It's called um, Thrive Market. Yep. Have you heard of that one? Yes, I have. Okay. Oh, great. So I actually am lucky enough that, um, in fact, an investor in my group was a co-founder, and I invested in the seed round. And so it's been a bit of a Michael Jordan situation. The company's doing very well, and I continue to watch it. I'm just very excited about it. It's great. You know, they're spreading health across the U.S. and what they're doing. And so it's just a it's a great uh, initiative they have, and the company's doing well. So that's another exciting thing that I you know, am involved with and, and watching. Awesome. So it sounds like you're across some you know some pretty diversified deals, and we didn't really get into diversification on this show, but I think I'm gonna have to get you back to talk a little bit about it because that's it's an incredible topic that we could talk about for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally. I just want to. I'll give you an example. Okay, so okay. I have ATM machines. I have about 40 ATM machines. And since 2008, I've probably averaged about 36 to 30, 38% a year on them. Wow. Um, and I get paid monthly. I get to compound those results because I get paid every month. Um, one of my favorites, I can actually log into my machine, my machine, see what the real transactions are. So it's completely transparent. And uh, I will say for anyone listening that there's a lot of ATM scams out there that are pyramid schemes. I've actually came across one myself the past few years. I finally got broken up last year. But, um, you know, the... Uh, so it's a dangerous area and it's very saturated and mature, mm-hmm. but um, that's just one example of some of the other things I'm doing and, and diversification can really be amazing. Awesome. So, we, we, how many, uh, you said 36 uh, ATMs or 40? I've got, I've got about 40. I, I actually don't, I think it's about, I don't remember the exact number, it's about 40. Um, those are all in Southern California with a local operator that I've been investing with for years. Awesome. So, awesome stuff. Mate, who's the most influential person in your career? Great question. So it's interesting, you know, I think a lot of people would probably answer, you know, either Robert Kiyosaki or someone who really influenced them for cash flow. But in my case, I think it was actually my grandfather. And the reason being is that he was the one who really taught me to be very conservative and to not spend money on expensive assets. Um, and to, you know, so it was watching him and how he lived and made me more conservative, I think, which has really affected how I invest because I really invest in a conservative way and I look for low risk cash flow. And I think all of that has been programmed into me from when I was young. Um, and by the way, I just want to say, you know, the key to being a successful cash flow investor, passive cash flow investor is low overhead, right? right? If you want to get out of the corporate world, you got to have low overhead. And if you start spending money on things that aren't necessary, all of a sudden you just, you're making it much harder for yourself. Right. And so being conservative is very helpful when it comes to being a passive cash flow investor. 
that's that's very good advice. Low overhead, and um, I actually had someone else on the show recently that when they did break out of the rat race into being a full time investor, they actually had to scale back a little bit, you know, in terms of you know leasing of cars and certain things because you know you, you only had a certain amount of cash flow coming in a month, and until that grows over a period of time. You just have to sort of tighten the belt a little bit. So I think that's uh, very, very good advice. Uh, mate, the last question is the best U.S. deal you've completed to date. You know, because I do a lot of different type of investing, I'm not going to count for my market because startup, I haven't cast out of it, and it's a weird situation. Um, but that's been the best uh, U.S. investment I've made to date by far um, as far as multiple. Yeah, the, the current multiple current valuation is something ridiculous, like over 50x in like two years, okay? Um, but the best deal that I've actually been gotten cash flow on, that I've gotten compounded on, definitely my ATM machines. So, you know, I don't, I don't invest for these types of returns normally. It just happens to work out this way. But I've been averaging about 36 38% annualized since 2008. And if you work out compounding at those rates, it's pretty ridiculous because it's been a long time. Most of the real estate investments I target, I typically target a, a minimum 11% average annualized cash flow net to investors projected. And a total return of about 16 to 20 and so I'm not going to get a 36, 38% return on most of my real estate deals. That being said, there have been a couple that have been close to 36, 38% annualized that have cashed out. Um, I have to go back and look at them, but, um, but they weren't intended to be those. It was more like you invest at the right time, you got the right offer in a couple of years, you kind of sell it because you just can't, you know, it's an offer you can't refuse type of situation. Awesome so. stuff. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you have some incredible portfolio of both, you know, oil to cash flow uh, to ATM machines to real estate to different types of real estate investments. So, really, really incredible stuff. If people wanted to uh, reach out to you, Jeremy, where can they reach you to continue the conversation? Absolutely, I would love to talk to anybody. I'm happy to take a phone call with anybody. If you're brand new and just starting, I'm happy to help. Um, it's one of the ways that I try to get back is help new people all the time. Talk to them. Um, and I've talked to anybody for any reason. I'm a huge networker and see if I can help you. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, my email is by far the best way, which is uh, jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at Roll Investments, which is R-O-L-L, investments with an S, so it's plural, uh, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com is the best way to reach me. Fantastic, mate. Well, we're going to have all those links in the show notes later on today up on my website. And so people can reach out to you and continue the conversation. Uh, I want to thank you for taking some time to drop in and chatting with us and give us, you know, bestowing all your knowledge upon us because, you know, you sound like you have an incredible vast array of experience coming from 2002 when you started investing all the way now to 2016 where you're invested in, you know, many different asset classes in real estate, but they're not also across many diversified industries like oil and ATM machines. So well done. A big pat on the back to yourself, mate, because uh, you've clearly come a long way. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. I appreciate it, Rita. I was going to say, we need to do another five podcasts to cover half the topics we talked about today in proper detail. <laughs> a lot of information. So whoever has listened all the way to this point, thanks for hanging in there. We know it was a long, uh, a long podcast. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Catch up. We'll catch up soon, mate. Okay, thanks. Well, there you have it. Another great episode. I hope that inspired you all to take some action, put down the TV remote and start investing in US real estate. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with Jeremy and all the links that we did mention on today's show will be up on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com. Whilst you're there, sign up for my newsletter so you can uh, keep up to date on all the latest deals that I'm investing in. And you can check out the wine and cheese events that I host every single month in downtown LA. Remember, if you are in the LA area and you want to catch up for a beer or coffee or lunch or whatever, then just hit me up at reed at rsmpropertygroup.com and we'll hook up. We'll put you on the calendar and we'll hook up and uh, go out and chat some about some real estate. 
Now, thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on this show, continuing to grow your financial IQ about US real estate. If you do like this show and you want to give back, jump on iTunes. You know how to do it. Go on there and leave a five-star review. Show iTunes that we're, I am providing you some incredible content and you guys are loving that content. All right, we're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.